Hey, we're all watching the Tour de France right now, and even though most of us can't race our own bicycles, we're still focused on our overall health and well-being, and that's where today's sponsor, MitoQ, comes in. Like everything else in our bodies, our mitochondria becomes less efficient as we age. From the age of 30 on, the levels of the antioxidant called CoQ10 in the mitochondria can decline by as much as 10% with each passing decade. This means that our body's natural resilience also declines, and that can impact training, recovery, immunity, digestion, sleep, stress, hormones, and even brain power. And that is why this new supplement called MitoQ is becoming so popular with athletes like you and me. It helps our bodies better absorb intense training periods and then recover faster. Some athletes have even said they've seen an improvement in VO2 max, heart rate variability, and lactate threshold. When you combine that with not needing as long to recover and being able to maintain more intense training cycles, you can see why MitoQ could result in performance gains. To learn more about MitoQ's unique formula and the independent clinical trials that have been done on it, and to read some interesting athlete testimonials, go to www.mitoq.com. That's www.mitoq.com. Thanks to MitoQ for sponsoring this week's episode of the show. Let's get on with the podcast. Welcome back to the Vel News Podcast. Fred Dreyer coming to you on another Busy Friday here in Colorado. We have so much Tour de France news and information to catch up on. Since we last recorded, we have had breakaways. We've had dramatic victories. We've had controversy. We've also had some boring stages without breakaways. Uh, And we're going to get to all of that on the show today. Second half of the show, James Start and Andrew Hood have another dispatch from on the ground at the Tour de France. They have been talking to fans. They've been interviewing riders, talking to people about this very unique and very strange COVID-19 Tour de France. We also have a short check-in with American writer Brent Bookwalter. Brent is not at the Tour de France this year, but he has some great insight into Mitchelton Scott, the team of Adam Yates that's leading the race right now, and just some great thoughts on the nervousness around the opening week of the Tour de France. But before we get to that, of course, we have to check in with Jens Vogt to get caught up on the last three stages of action. Jens, today, stage seven, we just saw a uh, stage that took a dramatic turn in the last 35 kilometers as Team Ineos Grenadiers went on the front in the crosswinds and just really dialed it up, caught a few GC riders out, Richie Port, Tade Pogacar, Mika Landa, all losing time. You know... <laughs> I feel like every uh, throughout the podcast, we've been talking about how Ineos Grenadiers are maybe not the strongest team, but today it seemed like they had like, it was like the tricks up their sleeves. They're not ready to just roll over. What came to mind when you saw them getting on the front in that crosswind section and breaking up that front group? There was more experience and local knowledge and having their team directors in the car preparing that stage that moment in the race really perfectly. Um, they only had four guys left at that point of the race. So they lost half of the team. I stick to my guns. They are not as strong as they were, but they are clever. They know what to do. And with what they have in the moment, they did a pretty good result for today, a pretty good operation for today. Despite the fact that they have maybe limited power, they clever, they know when to go. And in the end, they got a little bit of help from the other teams. <clears throat> Because it was all panic stations, all hands on deck in the last 20 to 30 kilometers. What surprises me always is the city of Castres. It's the biggest city. 
And even me as a retired commentator, I know they turn more into a tail crosswind and it's going to be super stressful and dangerous. Yet, 60 guys in the first group, 40 of them get surprised by it. How can that happen? How are they not prepared? I mean, I could put my finger down this morning. Here, that's the point. But the race is really important to be at the front. And yet, they all get surprised by it. I don't get it. Yeah, to me, it was very reminiscent of last year's stage 10 of the Tour de France, also won by Wout van Aert, I might add, where there was a crosswind section coming into the finish. Ineos, and I believe Jumbo Visma, again lit it up on the front, and Richie Porte, Thibaut Pino, and Mika Landa were all caught out. They were all in the second group. They lost about a minute, minute 20. Today, we again saw Richie Porte and Mika Landa lose 120. Uh, yeah, I mean, the first thing that came to mind was, hey, guys, did you not learn your mistake from last year in the crosswinds? Yeah, that uh, should have happened again to the same uh, type of riders. It's, um, yeah, a lot of, G- or a few GC hopes are actually... Well, they are out of touch for the podium. Most dramatic uh, um, name of the day would be uh, Tadej Pogacar. I mean, he was the guy in the white jersey as the best young rider. And he not only lost uh, that uh, white jersey to Egan Bernal, he lost precious time. Um, I, In my private predictions, I had him on a podium in Paris. Now, to make a 1 minute 20, to riders like Egan Bernal, the defending champion or superstar of the season, Primoz Roglic, I cannot see that happen. So let's get to the finale of the stage. We saw Wout van Aert take his second sprint win of the race. This comes just a few days after he was the one of the strong climbing domestiques for Jumbo Visma on the climb to Orsia Merlet. And this comes just after he's won Milano San Remo and... Uh, Strata Bianca in the same year. I mean, Wout van Aert is having just this amazing year. And it reminds me that every few years, or maybe every five or six years, I feel like we see something like this, where a rider is on such good form that they break the mold of specialization in cycling. They can climb, they can win sprints, they can win, you know, classics. I feel like Tom Bonin had a couple years in there where he was winning bunch sprints, classics, maybe even like a prologue here and there. And I'm curious... You know, as if you recall some other instances like this where riders have been on such good form for a period of time that they just seem to like, they seem to buck the, the trend of cycling, which is, you know, you're a GC guy, you're a classics guy, you're a time trialist, and what that's like. Well, we had that one year where uh, Philippe Gilbert was so super strong. He won Yeish, he won more classics in the spring, he did win a mountain stage in the Tour de France. Um, taking the jersey, he was just unbeatable for that whole entire year. Or well, remember when Peter Sagan uh, came in the first one or two years, you didn't know what to think of him. Is he a sprinter? Is he a time trialer? Is he a classics rider? GC contender? He could basically do whatever he wanted to, uphill, downhill, on the flats. Yep, every five years, every ten years, we have such a superstar. Who knows if uh, Remco Evenepoel wouldn't have crashed so badly in the Gio Lombardia, who knows what he would have done in this first week already because he seemed to be another one of these super talents where you just don't know what what category he is in because he can just do it all. So yeah, every now and then we do have this impressive uh, talents and clearly Wout von Arts is one of them. This year he is a la Fuego. He is on fire this year and I don't see any stopping for him. He might win in a few days again. Uh, he might win in Paris again. 
it is super impressive to watch him. So let's say, Jens, let's say you were his agent or like his guru, you know, you were the guy who was giving him advice about which avenue to go down. I mean, seeing how strong he is in these wide variety of bike races, what type of advice would you give him about where to direct his talents going forward? I would, he's still young, his body can take all the workload, still. I mean, the way it looks like he's going to go straight after this season, takes a week off, and then go straight into the cyclocross season. I would say, Wout, I know you love cycle sport, but you have been twice, twice, I believe, or three times, world champion already, three times world champion. So that's good. Let it go. Focus on the road. Otherwise, you just cook yourself. You know, if you burn the candle on both ends, it gives a lot of bright light. But then the flames meet in the middle and the candle is burned. And you cannot recover that candle. So I would say, hey, slow down a little bit. You are the next superstar of cycling. And then do some proper testing with Simsi. Are you actually able to do three days in the high mountains? Are you a potential candidate for a grand tour? Or should you focus on stages, stage races like one week, like Perinese? He can surely win Perinese. He could win all the classics. I think I would go focus on the classics, on the sprints, and make a living out of that. And don't try to be everywhere. It worked really nice for him with the cross, uh, cycle cross uh, world championships. But maybe it's the moment now to focus on one uh, domain and give your body a chance to recover in between your efforts, in between your seasons to your career lasts another 10 years from now. That would be my advice. If I would talk to a team, I would go, I want $10 million. That's for damn sure. I know. I mean, that's my big question when I look at this stacked Yumbo Visma team, which is like, how long can they keep this group of all-star talents together? If you're any other team in the world tour right now, you have to be uh, trying to clear some room on your payroll to try and offer more money and maybe build a team around it. Because, you know, we will remember this Yumbo Visma team for years and years to come. But my assumption is that these guys are going to go off to other teams and have teams build around them in the future. Well, who knows? I mean, if you like uh, look at Formula One, I believe sponsors would rather give 50 million or 100 million uh, to Team McLaren Mercedes and uh, to, to a team uh, Mercedes and uh, um, Lewis Hamilton than you would give to the second to last team, right? Or whatever. NFL sponsors would rather sponsor Tom Brady than the unknown uh, uh, next quarterback they could get for cheap. No, they put all the money on a superstar and in a moment team jumbo visma is the super force the super power in cycling so i believe they also attract sponsors so they might be able to sign up enough more sponsors to keep all that magic team together so jens we're recording this on friday we just watched stage seven yesterday was the uphill finish stage six to mont iogal i had Put it down beforehand as a potential GC battle. As we saw, that GC battle didn't happen. It looked like the guys rode a pretty, you know, tough tempo up the re- up the mountain, but really nothing uh, materialized. Let's say Luxenko took a breakaway win, a uh, great breakaway win. But what was your opinion of the fact that there was no GC battle that day? Why do you think that happened? Well, first of all, strong ride by Lutsenko. Really, like, really strong ride, classy rider, well-deserved win. But apart from yesterday, 
the top three contenders, Pogacar, Bernal, and Roglic. I can fully understand. They just want an easy day. They don't want to mix it up at all. They just want to keep it like it is. But everybody else, why didn't they use the chance to make up some time? Everybody outside of these three superstars, do they really think they can beat Bernal and Roglic face-to-face on the next hilltop finish? No. You got to make your time up somewhere else. Like Thibaut Pino, why didn't he go? Or Bauke Mollema, why did he wait so long? He could have gone a little earlier. Um, Guillaume Martin, why didn't he go earlier? Uh, uh, Mikel Lander, he was there. Why didn't he try to gain five seconds, ten seconds? It's also important for your head to put your mark on the race. Here, here I am. I did finish second today. I took five precious seconds to all the other contenders. I couldn't understand because just as you said, the tempo was tough. They would have dropped you and me easy. But for the top 10 of the France contenders, it was just just a little more than cruising speed. You know, it, it was uncomfortable, but I'm sure they could have attacked earlier. The only one who tried was Fabio Aru, but the other ones, they were just sitting there and wait until they get budget in the end. I did not understand that. I, to me, it was a lost chance, a lost day, for the second line GC contenders to make up time to the superstars. Yeah, and I wonder if it fits into the theme that we've seen throughout this tour so far, which is caution. You know, there's the uncertainty of the race, COVID-19, stage one, the crashes. It really seems like the riders are, they're, they're riding very cautiously. You know, we didn't see a breakaway on stage five. And, you know, I'm with you. I wonder if that lost opportunity and riders taking it a little cautiously, um, if some riders are going to regret that later in the race. Um, surely they will. Okay, the tour is special. We got COVID-19. The riders, they do not have their 15,000 kilometers in the legs or whatever. There's three or 4,000 uh, racing miles in their legs. So they're also a little bit into the unknown. They're not sure how long they can keep the form, how long they can keep the shape. Um, the tour has a special design this year. We do not have that easy first week of rolling you know, find your rhythm with all these sprinter days. Uh, we had a, a smaller hilltop finish on a second day already, a pretty big hilltop finish on the fourth stage already. So that's quite unusual. So the riders, they don't have a chance to find the rhythm. So they have to take it day by day. And maybe some of them are a little intimidated by the hard stages yet to come starting from tomorrow. So Jens, I know this feels like it was 100 years ago, but it was only three years ago. You know, the biggest GC story so far in this race was on stage five. Uh, Julian Alphalippe was in the yellow jersey. He was cruising along. It seemed like a very nonchalant stage. And then um, he took a feed inside the 20 kilometer to go barrier, which is a no-no. And the UCI race jury decided to penalize him 20 seconds, a move that kicked him out of the yellow jersey. Adam Yates took over yellow. Um what was your, what was your um, emotion and your feeling around this in the moment, and did it change at all as time went on? What did you think about this decision to penalize Julian Alaphilippe and kick him out of yellow? Well, you know we do have rules, and every rider knows them. But seven or eight out of ten, they do not get penalized. They just ah, just close my eyes, just let it go, let it go. And maybe this they try to be no. We got to be correct. This is uh, it's not going to happen. Um, there is no mistake done by Julian Alaphilippe because if he sees his official team car 
and a team member he knows in the official team kit standing on the side of the road handing out bottles, he thinks, okay, they have checked. They must have checked all the rules. If they are there, it must be okay for me to take a bottle. It was a warm day. He was probably happy about that race bottle or the water bottle. Um, so the mistake is within the team. Normally, it's you can start feeding from 30 kilometers after the start until 20 before the finish line. Very often, the commissaire can decide it's a very hot day. We open the feeding zone already 10K after the start. Or we like today, they had feeding until, I believe, 10 to go, I believe. It was today. But your team director is responsible to listen to tour radio and make that decision. Yes, we can be handing out bottles there or not. And it was a mistake by the team. And you could see... Uh, Julian and his team, they took it like a champ, said, yep, nothing to say. Our mistake, we were not going to complain. We're not going to file a complaint. Our mistake, we messed it up. Bad for us. Um, funny side story. You know, life sometimes, how it swings back and forward, and what comes around, comes around. 2016, the spectacular stage where Chris Cromer runs up the Mont Ventoux in yellow without a bite. Adam Yates takes the yellow jersey. At the dinner table, he gets the order from the jury. You got to give back that jersey, Chris Frome, because it was not his fault. So he once in 2016, he lost the yellow jersey because of a jury decision. And here we are. Four years later, he gets the jersey because of a jury decision. So well, life just swings around. <laughs> That's funny. I, I had totally forgotten about that. I had not forgotten about Chris Frome running on the Vontu. That will be in my memory until the day I die for how strange it was. But uh, I had forgotten that the jury decision had taken the jersey away from Adam Yates. Yeah, I, I kind of chalked it up, too, to the fact that it was caught on camera. You know, it's like rule bending, rule breaking goes on the Peloton. But if it's not caught on camera, I feel like, eh, or if it doesn't involve a marquee rider, a lot of times they'll let it go. But anymore now, I feel like if something is caught on camera and not enforced, the jury looks worse than if they enforce something that was caught on camera. So it's almost like, you know, if they you, you play the game of well, what would happen if they hadn't have enforced it and it's a French rider and it's not enforced, and it's caught on camera and all of a sudden everyone's crying foul of French favoritism. So, you know, I think it was, you know, it's big race. It was on TV. They they kind of had to do it. So. Now you said Adam, you know, like you said, Adam Yates inherits the jersey. He takes over yellow, and the big storyline there is from months and months ago. Mitchelton Scott and Adam Yates have been saying, "We don't want the yellow jersey. We're going after stage wins." You know, this Tour de France is all about stage wins. We won four stages last year. It was such a big thing for our team, and so now they get this yellow jersey. And it's like, oh, okay, are you going to defend it? Are you going to still target stage wins? They're, they're still saying, hey, you know, stage wins, but it sounds like you think they're going to try and defend this thing as long as possible. Well, it's a common procedure for teams going, oh, no, we don't. I mean, geez, we're all cyclists. All the time you go, oh, I couldn't train. Nah, I got no shape. Nah, nah, nah. Uh, I said it many times, probably you said it to your friends in, in your uh, next weekend, right? Said, oh, no, I couldn't train, I had to work so much. That's just cycling. Uh, that's what cyclists do. Uh, he's obviously in really good shape. You could see when he followed uh, Julian Alaphilippe's acceleration on the second stage, I believe it was already, yes. Just missed out on stage one or yellow by that little. He's in good shape. And they are a smart team. They are an experienced team. Now that they are in yellow, of course, they want to hang on to it. And I believe they do start to see 
a little bit of a chance actually for potential podium space. Um, remember yesterday? Yep, yesterday. They rode with the entire team. They had six guys in the front riding behind the eight-rider breakaway. That was a strong breakaway. If you don't want to hang on to that jersey, if you don't believe in that, you go, you know what, Jumbo Visma and uh, Team Ineos, it's your tour. Go, go, go. I, I don't give a damn fly about it. But no, they almost killed half of the team chasing group yesterday. And you could see today, first acceleration by Team Borohans Grower, three or four, three or four of uh, Michel Scott went straight back with the sprinters because they were tired from yesterday. So, and uh, after the next split, Adam Yates, well prepared for that. He was on a good wheel. He was in the first group, but all alone. The last 30 kilometers, no one there to help him, no one there to bring any bottles. Adam Yates in yellow was isolated in a 30 to 35 rider group for 30 kilometers. I cannot remember to the France where I have seen the leader jersey on a relatively flat and easy stage being isolated like that. But he saved today because he's a clever guy. He, he did sit on the right wheels. So another good day for him. And tomorrow, the legs will have to talk. So tomorrow and Sunday, we're heading into the Pyrenees. We have some big mountain stages coming up. Um, Saturday's stage, we are hitting, well, they are hitting the Parasort, the Porte de Ballets, the Col de Menta. You know, you have raced through the Pyrenees many times, Jens. How would you describe these climbs? And what are the elements of the Pyrenees that make them just difficult like why are the pyrenees so hard i can precisely describe the climbs the first climb coleman day 7.8 kilometers per 7.7 average gradient port de ballet 13.7 kilometers 7.7 average gradient the last climb called the pyrazord 9.8 kilometers with 7.8 gradients um i am prepared for this um no day tough climbs um First, uh, first we got after 49 kilometers tomorrow, we got the green jersey sprint. Who knows who's going for that after today's stage? Um, so it's, it's the first, it's a short stage, only 141 kilometers, but it's the first big mountain stage, the first stage in the Pyrenees. And the Pyrenees, the climbs are a little steeper, the roads are a little more narrow, a little worse surface than in the Alps. In the Alps, the climbs tend to be a little longer less steep and bigger and wider and better roads. So pure climbers terrain here in the Pyrenees. And remember, it's not the stage finish on the Cole Pyrrhus Some years ago, a certain Chris Froome attacked surprisingly over the top, finished by himself and took precious 14 or 21 seconds to Nairo Quintana. Nobody saw that coming. So we all remember that stage. It's not over when you first on top. You also got to come down safe and in one piece and because there's a few turns they actually go pretty good um so it's going to be for the climbers yes but you also going to be good to send and if they only drop you and alaphilippe by one minute or 50 seconds on the top he might come back on the downhill because he is a very gifted descender so tomorrow's stage promises all the elements of the absolutely fascinating and exciting day in the tour de france do you see it a solo winner, small group, or large group? I would think three to five riders in the front. Some really good big names. Um, and they're going to battle it out. Not only for the stage win, but to drop the other opponents they just left behind, right? Like today, there was common interest to make sure Mikelanda doesn't come back. 
that Tati Pogacar doesn't come back. So, of course, in the, at the front, they were all riding together uh, to make sure first they kill them behind and tomorrow they try to break the other ones. Well, we're going to be, uh, I'm going to be watching it. I can't wait. I love it when the Tour de France has its first mountain stage because you really do get to see who is prepared and who's been kind of bluffing it for these first uh, couple of stages. So thank you so much to Jens. Jens' segment's being brought to us by Trek Bikes, uh, reminding everyone to go by bike, try to replace one car trip by a bike ride every week, post about it on social media with the hashtag go by bike. Get your friends to do it, and you can learn more at trekbikes.com slash go by bike. Thanks so much, Jens. My pleasure. Hey, many of us have heard of supplementing our training with the antioxidant CoQ10 for energy and recovery. Well, today's sponsor, MitoQ, is a unique form of CoQ10 engineered to get inside the mitochondria to help create cellular energy and neutralize free radicals. It helps improve recovery, immunity, digestion, sleep, and stress, all of which will help you train better and be healthier. To learn more about the unique formula, to read some independent clinical trials and some athlete testimonials, go to www.mitoq.com. That's www.mitoq.com. Let's get back to the show. Yeah, undoubtedly, the the first week of the tour is up there with the most nervous, intense, uh, high drama moments that I've ever experienced on a bike in any race. And I think it is attributed to a lot of factors. Um, maybe the biggest one is that the the teams are so deep. Uh, it's you know this is obviously a weird year with the the preparation and the everyone's approach into it. Um, but I, I'm imagining it's still the same in that everyone everyone that's on a Tour de France squad for any team, it's severely hard-fought selection. Um, usually most teams have 15 guys that are rare and a peak and ready to go, and they take the best eight. And that, uh, that process in itself creates a lot of uh, pride, a lot of um, just that high-stakes, uh, really motivated environment. Um, and, a, and a deep, super talented environment. It's like the best riders in the world, all on arguably their best form of the year. Um, I don't think anyone goes to the tour at anything less than their best. Um, no team is in the situation where they have to take guys that aren't at their best. And uh, that just makes it uh, extremely hard fought. Almost, you know, every minute of every stage, even if it looks a little relaxed, you know, there's times on the TV where you're seeing guys having a chat or maybe letting their guard down a little bit. Uh, but really in my memory from my four tours, those moments are a few and far in between. And the, the, all the teams are scrutinized and stressed over by the directors to, to ride together. It's always just like, stay together, stay together. Like, you know, ride as a team, ride as a team, um, get positioned for this corner, get positioned for this climb. And, and that just sort of like perpetuates and extrapolates, um, further and further out. So in a lot of races, say a, a key section or a key point, maybe the race will start setting up 20, 30, 40 K before, you know, at the tour, it's, it's such a high drama, high stakes situation to have one critical point that, you know, often it'll be hours and hours and hours, maybe 50 and 60 K before guys and teams are already setting that up and moving that into play. Um, and the tension just builds and builds and builds. And, uh, there's really no room to, um, to back off. If you, if you touch your brakes or you, slide back for a second uh you lose all that hard fought position and then 
um, you gotta work even harder to get it back. How does that tension manifest itself socially in uh, the moments off the bike, you know, at the dinner table, massage, when you're with your teammates? Is it there or does it leave once you're off the race course? Traditionally at a tour, um, there is definitely a little bit of an insulating factor. Um, once you're with, with your team, kind of in that safe zone, get back in the bus, uh, a lot of just decompressing happening. Um, so I, I'd like, yeah, I, I think, uh, whether it's at the dinner table or the massage table, you know, those are sort of safe zones and we do get the opportunity to decompress and take a breath, let her hair down, uh, talk about something ideally other than the bike race too. Um, that said, there's always another day and it's so intimidating the, the three week nature of it. And, and as we saw today in the, the tour, a stage that often looks benign and looks to be um, less decisive can immediately turn into an extremely decisive one. So even if, even if maybe the stage tomorrow, oh, okay, it's going to be a sprint day. We can relax a little more, like hang at dinner for an extra 15 minutes and talk with your teammates. Well, actually maybe you can't because we got to be lined up, ready to go, um, on the clock on that schedule, you know, from the moment you know, you're, you wake up in the morning. So the, I'd say that the tension does sort of, um, hold and maintain um through all the moments the the hotel moments are more more tense i'd say at the tour than another race but there is some some insulation and some actual uh relief and respite from it uh once you are just with only your team you know the big storyline around your team mitchelton scott is now adam yates has the yellow jersey team came into the race you know really talking about stage wins and how yellow you know wasn't a big objective but now they're 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 going to try to see how long they can hold it you know have you been um, a part of a team either at the tour de france or other teams where objectives have changed dramatically during the race and how as a rider do you wrap your head around a dramatic change in objective when you came in thinking you're going for one thing and at some point you're like oh plans have changed yeah most definitely the the guys at mitchelton sky right now at the tour are probably going through a little bit of that um especially the the more workhorse oriented guys. I think the team was pretty clear on their ambitions for the tour and not um, declaring a big GC push, but going for stage wins. Um, that said, there were, there's for sure guys in the squad that are more targeting stage wins and a few guys who are maybe, you know, looking to work a little more. Um, but that, that's a different dynamic than going to the race and saying, we were lining up everyone for this guy. Everyone has the role. These guys are taking over this terrain. These guys are taking over this terrain. Um, so with this, the stage goal mentality, it's definitely a little more open. Uh, guys are probably looking at the profiles the first week thinking like, okay, if I'm not in the break here, I can Gruppetto, 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 save some energy, save some energy. And then immediately now that, uh, you know, they have the yellow jersey and they are trying to defend those guys in, in those moments where they maybe thought they were going to be able to stock a little energy and, and really focus on their moment or their opportunity later in the race. Um, that's taken away and turned on its head and they're working really hard now. Um, the images I've seen of, uh, of those guys riding the front, um, that's, that's exhausting at the tour and it, it takes its toll. I remember, I think it was 2016, um, when Greg Van Avermaet took the Jersey with BMC, um, that wasn't expected either. You know, Greg was on the hunt for stage wins, clearly, um, pulled off, a an amazing ride to pull a stage win and also got the yellow Jersey. And then, yeah, immediately we went from thinking, oh, oh, we're riding for GC and maybe a secondary sort of stage stage goal here to now we're also trying to defend this. Um, and I remember personally that just being exhausting for me. Um, at that point, I was trying to look after 
a couple GC guys. And then we also had a yellow Jersey for another guy. So the, the hierarchy, um, you know, you run out of guys to work with pretty quick in that situation. And I remember, um, carrying that, carrying that burden and that load, um, from trying to defend the Jersey just for a couple of days, uh, it really wore me out and paid for it later in the race. What do you expect to see out of Adam and Mitchelton Scott in these next few stages? Well, for sure. He, he's not going to fall underneath the radar and, uh, you know, sneak off in any, uh, <laughs> early long range breaks, um, being in the race lead and with that fancy Jersey. Uh, that said, he's, he's looking great from what I can see. He's, he's looking really strong. Um, and I raced with him at the Dauphine a few weeks ago and there he was, rebounding from a bit of sickness um but it was still super skinny really fit and and really quite relaxed um i think one of the greatest strengths of uh of adam is that he's a pretty relaxed and realistic guy and he focuses really hard and leaves it all out there and he loves to rock him and sock him out there in the in the race and and throw it all down but then he can he can switch off and sort of say that was that was that and go on to the next day so i'd imagine they're still taking a bit of a day-by-day approach um, but I think the, it's huge to have the Jersey in the team. I think it's really exciting. I mean, as a, as a teammate, just watching the race, I'm excited for him. Um, and I know the other fans of the team are, are really pumped up on it. And I think it's, uh, it's great exposure for the team. It's great morale for the guys there and the staff and the squad. And, um, yeah, hopefully he'll, he'll keep fighting and, and hang on to that as long as he can. Um, and maybe that's, maybe a stage win still presents itself, but I would think that, uh, the priority will shift a little bit. The The dynamic of being in the Jersey and trying to win the stage is definitely different than sitting fifth overall or ninth overall or 15th overall or, or way down on GC. So um, the opportunities may not be as, uh, as big for a stage win as they would if he was down on time. Hey, before we get to Andrew Hood and James Start, I want to talk to you guys about an exciting new wrinkle we have with our Active Pass membership. Look, we launched Active Pass about two months ago, and since then we've had a ton of signups, and I've ha- I've gotten a lot of messages from readers, uh, both positive, "Hey, I love this thing," and also saying, "You know." Active Pass is cool, but there's elements of it that don't really apply to me. I'm not super interested in coaching or access to live events. What I really want is the content. I want Velo News Magazine. I want access to the daily exclusive content and all the stuff you're doing around the Tour de France. Well, guess what? We have a new membership that is catered to you if you are one of these people. Um, It's called Velo News Pass. It is $49 for an annual subscription and it includes all of the exclusive content on VeloNews.com. So that's all of the membership roundtables, hoodies column, um, archive pieces, daily analysis, and exclusive news pieces. Uh, in addition to a year subscription to VeloNews Magazine, that's nine issues. And we're also throwing in the industry deals like pro deals to Jordana Um scratch labs some other companies in there and yeah that's what's included in the new velo news pass it's 49 you can learn more or sign up at velonews.com slash active pass but this is a new a new membership product i'm really excited about it again you know this was born from a lot of readers um and your feedback so continue to reach out via social media or web letters at velonews.com and if you want more information on ActivePass or VeloNewsPass, check out velonews.com 
slash active pass. Okay, let's hear from Andy Hood and James Start. Good morning from cozy France. Uh, James, have to say the last couple days we've been driving a lot. I mean, I would th- I think we've almost been, dri- been driving more than we've been sleeping. Yeah, and it's been more exciting than some of the racing, actually. <laughs> Getting off that mountain yesterday was something. I mean, the, the roads were narrow and twisting, and it was only like 40 kilometers to the hotel, and it took us like an hour and 15 minutes. That's an hour and 15 minutes for, what, 25 miles? That gives you a sense of just how crazy it was, not to mention the sun setting straight in your eyes. Straight into our eyes. Plus, plus we got GPS to get sent into basically a... Uh, uh, an arroyo, as they call it in Spanish, kind of a, a ditch. <laughs> Basically, yes, it just <laughs> got worse and worse. It just got worse and worse. Uh, you know, it's part of the adventure of the tour, I suppose, you know, just driving around like fools. I mean, it sometimes doesn't leave much time for contemplation or for Hemingway-like prose. Um, you know, we, it's, it's, a, it's always a rush during the tour. And so, like a morning like today, it's kind of nice. The stage starts a little bit later. We're actually close to the start. So we're, uh, you know, we're taking advantage of this time to uh, reflect on the tour and what it's been like and just jo- enjoying a nice, quiet morning. Yeah, it's a lovely little, you know, some of these hotels have been, this is a very quiet little modest inn, really, you know, but they had a, a wonderful uh, little dinner for us last night of, you know, canard, duck, and, and then the specialty of the region, which is aligou, which is a sort of mashed potatoes mixed with some local cheese that, like, sticks and you have to it's 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 kind of hard to eat to get a you know get your fork around it but it's really tasty and you know it's nice to be able to to be in places that you know can boast the regional specialty because the tour de france is also a tour of france of course yeah it's it's nice to stay in these kind of uh loge de france type places that are family run you know it's not like a uh an ibis or a mccure kind of the chain hotels in france that you know sometimes you know if you're just here purely on business you know it has all the amenities that you need but it really takes away from the, the charm of the tour, I think, of these, these, these small little inns. And last night we had the, uh, some of the people from the publicity caravan. They were quite raucous. Uh, you know, that part of the tour hasn't changed. And what would it be like if you're, you know, to be at the tour and, and a hotel at the tour and not have to struggle to get Wi-Fi? You know, I mean, like we're walking around trying to find that one little corner on the, on the floor that had one band width of, of Wi-Fi. But, you know, we got it. Our, our GPS was absolutely going nuts last night, and uh, but we came down. It wasn't the gorge of the Tarn; it was another gorge on the side valley. Just absolutely spectacular. That's that's the surprises that the tour throws up. Uh, the last couple of days, there have been a lack of surprises, which have kind of uh, kind of angered and frustrated a few people. Now, James, you had the luck of uh, drunk straws on the motorbike two days ago, when indeed it was that famous stage of no breakaways. Tell us about that. Absolutely, the sleepiest stage I've ever been on in my life. Not, I mean, you know, most of those kinds of stages, you're already kind of, you know, bored with a, the sort of morning breakaway that is doomed to fail. But what I would have done to be able to shoot a breakaway off the front a little bit, going through the villages and stuff, a lot of the roads were narrow. There wasn't a whole lot of opportunity to pass. So you're stuck out of, in front of the peloton, and they're doing nothing. I mean, they're not, you know, if you get a breakaway, then one of the teams assumes the tempo, and uh, the pack is gently strung out, and that makes, you know, it's... It's, it makes for nice pictures. It also makes it easier to pass. None of that was happening. And they were just kind of on a group ride, it seemed, although they were going perfectly fast. Um, so it was it was, a, it was a sort of mind-bending stage, really, to spend five hours sitting on the back of the bike trying to find some sort of visual uh, element to, to, to work with. But, uh, you know, almost like a, a haiku of painting, you know, 
it was like hours of meditation for seconds of genius. And, you know, so much happened in the final meters of the race and the final kilometers that it was actually, you know, on paper, very exciting stage. As I said on my gallery, you know, and what is, could only be described as one of the sleepiest stages, Woot Van Aert, you know, dominated the sprint and the yellow jersey was uh, lost lost his yellow jersey to a time penalty. I mean, how crazy is that for a sleepy stage? Yeah, so much happened in the last 20K of that of that stage that was just absolutely, as you said, mind-blowing. Uh, really interesting to see Wout Van Aert uh, win that stage. Uh, I was actually talking to the sport director that morning, asking if they would give Wout uh, the freedom, particularly on that day. And he said the, the mission for that team, especially for Wout, is to make sure that Dumoulin and Roglic are well taken care of. And he said those calls would be made on the road. And obviously they let... You know, it was such an easy stage. There was no risk for those guys to uh, see any difficulties. So they let, uh, once they got over those two climbs towards the end of that stage, let Wout have his wings and, and really just a superb victory. Uh, and Wout basically says, I'm right back into domestique role. And he said he might have a run at a stage uh, on the Champs-Élysées. Well, you know, I, I, I rem- you were, we talked about that in the car. And it, it begs questions. What is a stage when there is are no risks? Uh, there's always risks, especially in your sprint final, and I would have thought there would have been risks on that one because a they weren't ra- racing hard, so the, you knew the sprint was going to get could be crazy, and the final run-in was uh, pre-technical. So when do you make that decision to to let your leaders fend for themselves, uh, and 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 when do you go, you know, and and let Woot um, go? I don't know what that is. I mean, there's other stages potentially where he's going to be able to to make a run at it, and maybe the Sean, obviously. Um, but I'm not quite sure when and how you make that decision. Obviously, they made it successfully uh, yesterday, but you know there could have been crashes. And uh, of course, James, the other big story that day was the uh, feed. Uh, you said you were on the bike. You saw that, didn't you? It was uh... well. I was I was on the bike. We were, we were you know it's the last 20k, and the, all of our motors are out in front of the race. We're taking turns drifting back to to shoot the front of the race. And at one point, I saw several teams on Quickstep, Visma, uh, Jumbo Visma. Uh, for sure, and I think Movistar, uh, doing this, these feeds. And I kind of said, geez, why are we – it's awful close to the finish. Why do we have to have feeds here? It's kind of weird. Um, but, you know, it's bike racing. They're obviously thinking about uh, uh, about everything, and it was a, a, an uphill. Uh, so I think that people were positioned there because it was one of the safer places to, to get that feed in because they were, you know, by this point, people are, you know, more, more, the, the speeds were pretty high. So at least on an uphill, you could safely make that transition. But it was within the, uh, you know, it was outside of the uh, accepted zone. And it proved to be problematic, um, obviously, for Julian, uh, who lost his jersey over it with the 22nd penalty. Other riders also did, but they weren't wearing the yellow jersey. Yeah, that, that feed zone is uh, it's a rule. It's a longstanding rule. I mean, it's not a big surprise to anybody. Uh, you know, the rationale is that last 20K is just lots of argy-bargy, lots of... Uh, Speeds are picking up, so it's considered too dangerous really to pass up bottles. That's that's the rationale. A lot of times they'll make the call to uh, shorten, you know, or tighten that that feet zone, as they call it, the feet feed zone, where the guys are, people are on the side of the road passing up bottles. Uh, for example, uh, well, on a climb, perhaps, you know, when there's less risk or a very hot day. It's maybe. a very hot day. I was going to say for the stage uh, going into uh, back out near Toulouse. Uh, it's already been announced before the race, even overnight, it, is, it was announced that the feed zone will be within 15Ks. And occasionally they'll make the call on the radio mid-race if things are 
extremely warm. They might even I've, I've heard it even be shortened to 10 Ks to the finish on, on a you know where it is where it is safe. But obviously the fallout from that decision was was dramatic. Ala Philippe out of the yellow jersey with that time penalty, putting Adam Yates the accidental maillot jaune. And uh, your friend there, uh, Gouvenou, was quoted yesterday by uh, uh, AFP saying that looking at the profile and how Adam Yates can climb, I mean, he could carry the yellow jersey all the way into the Alps. Absolutely. It's uh, as as could have, uh, I think, uh, Julien, actually. Um, so uh, what can you say about that? Well, you know, the, Mitchell and Scott, they uh, – they uh, they said at the get go they're going for stages and they brought a team of stage hunters. But when you look at that t- team of stage hunters, they can morph pretty quickly into a GC team. You got some big big rollers uh, on the team. Um, I think that um, you know, and, and and Adam has has some help on the team in the mountains as well, and he's going well. Um, so I th- I think that uh, I think there's a very good chance that he could come 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 out of the Pyrenees uh, in yellow. Um, it's going to be interesting to see how they race the Pyrenees. I get a sense, you know, the last two days of racing have been uh, conservative to say the least. Uh, yesterday's stage was a magnificent stage in the Massif Central with a climb that we've never ever climbed over, um, the Col de la Suzette. And uh, we expected, I mean, we drove that thing and it was narrow and winding and steep and the road was, road conditions were a mess. There were a good two or three Ks where it was very, very steep. Yeah. And the tour organizers put that in there for a reason to, to, to dynamite the race and if somebody wanted to take it take the race in, in hand yesterday they could have blown that open on that climb there was there was opportunity that stage was set for, for big things to happen and they didn't and I think that um, that uh, I think that um, it's, it's, it's a sign of, of where the peloton is in their heads we I think that people are scared about this three-week tour they're scared about the final week of racing which is gonna be very hard um, they're worn out from the very intense opening stages and I think they're playing, you know, keeping the cards pretty close because nobody really knows where their condition is for a three-week race at this point of the year after, after you know, COVID and, and not racing for six months. And um, so I think the Pyrenees are not particularly hard this year. There's only two stages and only one really hard stage. And there's a very good chance that uh, the GC is not going to shake up until, until the final week. In that sense, uh, Adam uh, Yates could definitely have a nice long run uh, in yellow. I agree with your uh, analysis there, James, 100%. I, I was surprised, too. I thought the way Jumbo was coming out of the gate so heavily that they would really try to almost deliver, not a knockout blow, but just, you know, you, when you're going strong and your rivals are against the ropes, that's not the time to uh, pull up because uh, Bernal is, is obviously playing the rope-a-dope card. I mean, it wasn't going to be a climb where Bernal was going to get dropped, per se, but I think it could have been a, a day where they could have eliminated perhaps another one or two GC threats. Um, but... Everyone was saying, again, also that climb topped out and it kind of had a uh, false flat and a descent and a rolling uh, up to the finish that was not nearly, it was a big big ring climb there in the last uh, five, six Ks, not nearly steep, long enough or steep enough for the for these you know world-class riders to really do that much damage. And again, I have no idea what to expect in, in the Pyrenees. I think this is going to be a tour of surprises. Uh, both of those stages kind of finish with downhills, you know, so it's not the classic mountaintop finale where the trains can lead out the climbers and it's all just high-paced tempo and then uh, 2K to go attacks. So we could see some interesting uh, dynamics, lots of breakaways, I think, as well as maybe, you know, we could see some daring do from some of the people out there. Um, but I, I think to, it's I Andy, to, and let me just break in. I think it's perfectly great that uh, that Jumbo or Ineos hasn't already uh, put their f- foot down on this tour and already killed the suspense. Uh, there's there is still a lot of chance for breakaways and and other surprises, and maybe Animal Lucid Jersey and somebody else will take it. And how great is that? Um, because you know 
while the history books like the the tours with the big teams and the dynasties they're easy to write i find the 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 most interesting tours are the ones where the lead is constantly changing and there's a bit of suspense yeah i, I would love to see a, a kind of a second tier favorite jump into the frame here you know someone like naru quintana who's coming very well he could, he could pull a surprise in the pyrenees or even some other guys down lower on the GC. But uh, having said that, we need to wrap this up. I have my emergency battery light flashing brilliantly. <laughs> and James, you know, I don't think there's a 7-Eleven within about uh, 50Ks. No. to buy a new battery. So we're going to wrap it up here. Keep it short today. Uh, thanks for listening, James. Uh, thanks for having us. Good up, and we'll, we'll catch you guys in a few more days. Thank you. Take care. Take care.